In this season of Lent, we are going to be going through a survey of the Gospel of John, focusing in on the Lord Jesus as we begin to head once again towards Good Friday and Easter. And so, of course, we begin with the baptism of Jesus, as we just saw in the video. And this morning, I want to focus in on what happened after that when he began to call his disciples. And so I would invite you to bow with me this morning as we hear from God's word. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is for us today, that by your spirit it is living and active. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak through, each, uh, through it to each one of us today. Speak through me, your servant, and may the words be yours. I pray in your name. Amen. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Without a doubt, this is the most magnificent introduction ever written in the history of all of literature. And make no mistake, the claim within this introduction of the deity of Jesus Christ was and remains the most audacious claim in all of history. And whether or not this claim is true is the hinge upon which the door of history swings. As the great thinker C.S. Lewis once wrote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So let me ask you this morning, how important is Jesus Christ in your life? How important is Jesus to you? Is he of infinite importance? Is he of no importance? Or is he of moderate importance? Now, according to C.S. Lewis, the only two intellectually honest replies to that question is either A, he is the most important thing, the most important person in my life, or B, he is of no importance at all. Because in order for option C to be true, that Jesus is only kind of, sort of important, he's of moderate importance in your life, this would require a fundamental lack of understanding as to who Jesus truly is, what he has done, and what he demands of his followers. And now for John and his gospel. This introduction, he immediately confronts the reader with this audacious claim that Jesus is God. To which the naturally skeptical reader would immediately ask, and what evidence do you support for this claim? You know, John, you're talking a big game here. How are you going to back it up? And so John sets out to do that exact thing over the next 21 chapters. With his stated goal in chapter 20, verse 31, where he says, But these things are written, that you may believe that Jesus, Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So here's his, his thesis. Jesus is the Son of God, that he is equal co-creator with the Father. Then he says that 
believing in him makes all the difference because belief in in him and his name will give you life everlasting. And so my goal this morning is to show you that whether Jesus is of no importance to you or of moderate importance to you, I would like to show you why he should be of infinite importance in your life. And so turn with me this morning to John chapter 1. And there we'll begin looking at the account. Now in John chapter 1 and verse 35, we see that John begins his account with the testimony of another John, namely John the Baptist. John the Baptist is, of course, the forerunner who went before Jesus to prepare the people's hearts by the simple message of repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so this was a a message to repent of sin, to get right with God, because he knew that soon the Messiah would appear. And so many people flocked to this message, and they uh, they were there, they listened, they were convicted, they repented of their sins, and many were baptized in those waters of repentance. Of course, we see next in the story that Jesus himself emerges on the scene. He goes to John, asks him to baptize him, and despite John's protests, he does just that. Jesus is baptized. The Holy Spirit descends upon him, and we see him begin his earthly ministry. Now, it is sometime after this that, of course, we know from the other Gospels that Jesus immediately was was guided by the Spirit into the wilderness where he fasted and prayed for 40 days and then was tempted by the devil. Following this, he clearly goes back to where John the Baptist is preaching and baptizing at the Jordan River. And here is where we pick up the story in John chapter 1, verse 43. We read, the next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. And finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. And just like that, with no other conversation recorded, no reasons given, we see Jesus gives Philip this simple invitation, two words, follow me. We don't even read Philip's response. All we read in the next verse is that Philip is doing just that. He is following Jesus. Now, I love the simplicity of this invitation and the fact that Philip begins following Jesus without one word from him being recorded. Now, we have to assume here that Philip, of course, had some good reasons to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and to believe this so deeply that he would receive the invitation and follow. But I think we see something from the lack of Arguments or the lack of any persuasion being needed for Philip, that he is a man of deep faith. So when Jesus called, follow me, there was no more questions and no more hesitation. Philip simply followed. Now as we read this, it ought to dawn upon us that there must have been something extremely special about Jesus. Something almost magnetic. That though Philip and the other disciples that Jesus called had never met him before. They didn't really know anything about this man. Maybe some had heard, yes, he's a carpenter, he's Joseph's son, vaguely somewhere. But they had never known this man previously. And yet, when Jesus comes into the scene, he comes into their lives, and he utters two words, follow me, they just leave everything. They leave occupations. 
In the case of two here who had been following John the Baptist, they leave an old rabbi who they've been following, and they say, we're going to follow this new rabbi. We're going to leave everything old behind. And it makes one wonder, what was it that was so special about Jesus that just attracted these men to him? Was it his charisma? Was it the way he carried himself? Was it his authority? Was it the way he taught? Clearly, each of these men recognized something in Jesus so incredible that they were willing to leave everything behind immediately in order to follow him. Let me ask, have you encountered Jesus in this way? Have you encountered him in such a way that that the immediacy of the call, follow me, is one that you have said yes to? And you're not sitting around arguing or debating. You're not going back home to make other preparations for how this is going to look. You're just doing it. Like Philip, two words, follow me, and the very next verse, he's following. Have you met Jesus in this way? We see Philip did because it showed clearly in his actions. No words were necessary. In fact, we go on to to read that Philip saw something in Jesus that was so amazing that he immediately had to run and tell his best friend Nathaniel the good news. Now, as a side note here, Nathaniel is believed by scholars to be Bartholomew, that the two are one and the same. It was often common for people to have two names, just like Simon Peter, Nathaniel, Bartholomew, are one and the same. And we find the name Bartholomew given in the other three Gospels where Nathaniel is not. And so it's believed that they are one and the same. And so here we see that in this account, John knew Bartholomew as Nathaniel. That was the name he refers to him by. And so in verse 45, we picture Philip out of breath as he excitedly runs to find his friend Nathaniel. And then we read verse 45, him blurting out the good news. We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Here we see Philip, excited. He's just bubbling with enthusiasm over his new rabbi that he is following. He he is hoping, he is anticipating that Nathaniel is going to respond in the same way. But we see that far from mirroring Philip's enthusiasm, Nathaniel responds in a skeptical and insulting manner as he scornfully asks, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, reading this account without any other historical context, we would wonder at this reply, What's he got it in for Nazareth for? Why why such a negative view to ask, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, let me explain this a little bit. For comparison, does anyone remember the show Corner Gas? Anyone watch that show? Have you been by Dog River, Saskatchewan? I I think they've torn it down now. But if you've seen the show Corner Gas, you'll remember that in the show, the residents of Dog River, Saskatchewan, had a fierce rivalry with the neighboring town of Wollerton. In fact, the, the town of Wollerton was, was such a fierce rival of Dog River that whenever the the mere name Woolerton was mentioned around anyone in Dog River, they would immediately spit on the ground. Woolerton, Woolerton, they couldn't say it without spitting on the ground. They just despised the town of Woolerton. Now, 
I would say that I've met a few people who feel the same way maybe about Boisevane, but I won't go down that one. I know there's some rivalries out there, maybe some other towns around Killarney as well that there's some rivalries with, often going to school sports and athletics. But I, I give this as way of comparison. So Nazareth was to Nathaniel what Woolerton was to the people of Dog River. And the reason for this is because Nazareth was located on the border of a Gentile country. And you see, the Jews were so deeply prejudiced against the Gentiles. They were considered so far beneath them that they considered anyone or anything that came in contact with a Gentile to be unclean in the sight of God. So, for instance, if you had to do business with a Gentile and you came in contact and you took their money, you had to go through some ritual purification and things like that. And and even to do that was considered beneath most people who considered themselves good, pious Jews. And so here we see that simply because Nazareth was on the border of a Gentile country, the other good Jews despised it and considered it unclean as well just because of its proximity. They even nicknamed it the Galilee of the Gentiles. And they had the crude saying that Nathaniel instinctively utters upon hearing its name, can anything good come out of Nazareth? This wasn't something he just made up. It was a saying. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, how would Philip respond to Nathaniel's skepticism and negativity? Would he try to debate with him about the pros and cons of Nazareth? That, well, it's still in Israel. It's not so bad. Would he then confront Nathaniel's negative attitude and his obvious prejudice? Would he rebuke him for all of that? No. He does none of that. In fact, Philip doesn't even waste a single breath in argument. At the end of verse 46, we see his three-word reply. Come and see. That's it. Come and see. And here, Philip gives us a wonderful example of how we too can introduce a friend to Jesus. Come and see. The first thing we see Philip do is this. Don't put off trying to introduce your friends to Jesus. Don't put it off. Don't wait around. Don't think, I'll do it down the road. We see an immediacy of action. Philip is following Jesus, and the very next thing we see is he is running down the road to tell his friend about him. He didn't wait around, and neither should we. Secondly, don't be afraid to share your own enthusiasm and excitement of what Jesus means to you. You know, if he's truly changed your life, don't be afraid to let it show. Nothing speaks more loudly than your enthusiasm expressed in your actions and in your words. So as you're sharing, if you're excited about what Jesus has done in your life, don't be afraid to let that show. Thirdly, don't be offended or become defensive if the person you are sharing with doesn't immediately share your excitement or even, as Nathaniel did, has a stern rebuttal. Don't be offended. Don't be put off. Don't become defensive. Fourthly, we see from Philip Don't immediately feel like you need to be able to answer every one of their questions or argue with them as to why you're right and they're wrong. Philip doesn't waste a lot of time or breath arguing. Instead, number five, like Philip, we can invite them to come and see. Come and see. 
Now, of course, Philip had the luxury of physically introducing Nathanael to Jesus, which we don't have today. But by the work of the Holy Spirit, we understand and believe that the presence of Jesus is alive within us and within his body, the church. That by the Spirit's work, Jesus is present. Not physically, but his spirit is alive and well. And as we share about him, as we read his words and his teaching, Jesus is alive here. Do we believe that? Because if we do, we too can say, come and see. Come and meet Jesus. Come and experience him for yourself. And so we see Philip keeping it simple. He says, I'm not going to argue with you, Nathaniel. Just come and see. We do this by inviting people to come first and learn about him from the Bible, who he is, what he has done. Then secondly, we let them see the change that he has made in us. They're not going to believe anything we say if we don't have the change within ourselves. If the change isn't real in us of what we're telling them about, it's a non-starter, I really believe. But when we tell them about Jesus, and then we show them that, yeah, he's changed me, That is of crucial importance. And then the third thing is, when the time is right, we pray and we look for the opportunity to invite them to set aside their doubts, to open their hearts, and to experience Jesus personally for themselves. You see, Philip already had a personal experience of Jesus, but he couldn't replicate that for his friend Nathaniel. Nathaniel needed one himself. Same for me. I've had personal experiences with Christ in my life, but I can't replicate that for you, and you can't replicate that for anyone else, but you can invite them. Invite them to seek Jesus, to come and see, and just trust and pray that Jesus will reveal himself to them, that they too can experience him in a personal way. And so this is what Philip did for Nathaniel. And Philip must have known his friend well because without another word of protest, we just read in the next verse, they are on their way to meet Jesus. And in verse 47, we read this. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, we might look at this and go, Huh? What is he talking about? But here we need to recognize something important. That even before meeting Nathanael, Jesus already knew everything about him. He knew what Nathanael believed and what kind of character he possessed. He knew that Nathanael was a straight shooter and that he didn't deceive or mislead anyone. He also knew that though overly blunt sometimes, Nathanael was one of those guys who meant what he said and said what he meant. And Jesus also knew that he was sincere and devout in his desire to please God. And that along with his good friend Philip, he was eagerly anticipating God sending the Messiah to redeem Israel. And so Jesus knows all of this about him before they've even had their first conversation. But in verse 48, we see that when Jesus confronted Nathanael with this very pointed assessment of his character, Nathanael is startled, and he quickly asks, How do you know me? Now, this is a really interesting exchange. Have you ever met someone before that you've, to your knowledge, never met before? And not only do they know your name, but they know something about you, something personal. Has this ever happened to you before? Have you ever just met someone that you don't think you've ever met before and they know your name? Has that ever happened? 
Okay, I've had that happen quite a few times, and that's my first as a, oh, I guess I should know you too, and how do you know me? And you're trying to figure it out. But take that a step further. Not only do they know your name, but they make a character assessment of you, and you know they hit the bullseye. And that is Nathaniel. He's like, how do you know me? Like, not just my name, but you know me. And his question, well, we can understand it. And so Nathaniel clearly found Jesus' greeting, intimate knowledge, unnerving. But there's still a skeptic in him. Because he knows that Philip has already declared to him, I found the Messiah, it's him. But he's still thinking, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The skeptic is holding back. This guy's special. He knows things about me. But he's probably still thinking in the back of his mind, maybe we've met before and I just don't remember. Or perhaps, ah, this is probably it, Philip already told him all about me. That's how he knows about my character. The skeptic is alive and well in Nathaniel's mind. But Jesus immediately destroyed those doubts by revealing that he already knew something about Nathaniel that not even his good friend Philip could know. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Huh. Verse 49, Nathaniel declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. Talk about an instantaneous 180 degree turnaround. Here, one minute, we see Nathaniel insulting Jesus' hometown, skeptical of how Jesus already knew about him, and the very next, he is declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. This is one of the most radical, instantaneous turnarounds you will find anywhere in Scripture. I would argue this is even more sudden than Saul on the road to Tarsus. It is just like that. He goes from skepticism and doubt to one of the first declarations of faith that Jesus is, in fact, not just a prophet of God, but the Son of God. So it begs the question, What was it about what Jesus said about seeing him under the fig tree that had this drastic impact on Nathanael? Well, in Israel, it was a known practice for devoutly religious people to have an isolated location where they would go to be completely alone with God in prayer. Today, you may have seen the the movie The War Room, where you have a prayer closet. And in Israel, your prayer closet was often located somewhere out in the wilderness where you could get away under a fig tree. And the practical purpose of the fig tree, of course, would be to provide shade from the hot sun. But there was also a spiritual significance. The fig tree represented Israel. And it represented being under the covenant of Abraham. And so there was all these different meanings that were all packaged into Jesus seeing him sit under the fig tree. And in this simple statement, Nathaniel immediately recognized that there was no possible way that Jesus could have known that that's where he had been when Philip had found him. Remember, there were no cell phones back then. You know, there was no one with binoculars somewhere on the hill spying on Nathaniel and and pulling out his phone to to send ahead to Jesus. Okay, he's under the fig tree. That'll really get him, right? That did not exist back then. Nathaniel recognized this is supernatural knowledge. This is something that only God could know. 
And already having Philip testify to him earlier, I found the Messiah, and and his enthusiasm was real. This had been spinning around in his mind, and in that moment, he went from doubt and skepticism to faith and a declaration that Jesus is none other than the Son of God. And so Jesus, we see here, he proves his divinity to Nathanael by revealing that he knew everything about him right down to where he was praying while under the fig tree. And true to his character, once Nathanael is persuaded of something, he's not afraid to just blurt it out. And so he immediately declares, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Now I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice that for Nathanael, there is no neutral position in regards to Jesus. To him, either Jesus was of no importance, he was just another guy, another carpenter, no big deal, or Jesus was of utmost importance. There was no middle ground. There was no, oh, so you're the Messiah. That's kind of cool. See you later. (laughs) No, that did not exist for Nathaniel. This was an all-or-nothing proposition. If Jesus was not the Messiah, see you later. But if he was, in fact, the King of Israel, the Son of God, then he was all in just like that And he would give everything he had to follow this new rabbi, this master. He would follow him to the ends of the earth. And he would be willing to give his life if that's what it meant. We see here that he's either all in or he's all out. There is no middle ground. And we see here that this one genuine encounter with Jesus Christ changed his life forever. And it can change yours as well. And how I just love Jesus' response to Nathaniel's just brand new declaration of faith. Because here I can just picture a smile on Jesus' face and that humor coming through as he replied, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So, in other words... Jesus was saying to Nathanael, if you thought me knowing where you were sitting is impressive, (laughs) hold on, you ain't seen nothing yet. And he gives him a glimpse of what he's yet going to experience, a divine scene of angels ascending and descending, hearkening back to Jacob's ladder when he slept with his head on that old rock and he saw that vision of heaven. And you know who was at the top of that ladder? It was Jesus Christ himself. One of the first revelations of Jesus is way back in the Old Testament. And Jesus ties this in. And I believe he ties it in because he also knew the thoughts of Nathanael as he was praying under that fig tree. And I believe he was meditating on that exact passage and why he references it here. Of course, we don't know that for certain. But that is what I believe because we know that Jesus knew Nathanael's thoughts and prayers as well. And my friends, I want to just tell you today, as impressive as it was that Jesus knew everything about Nathanael, he knows everything. I mean everything about me, and he knows everything about you. He knows all of your skepticisms. He knows all of your doubts and your fears. He knows all of your ambitions, your hopes, and your dreams. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. He even knows the deep down things that we don't even know about ourselves. 
And as scary, and I mean as scary as that might sound, here's the most incredible part. He loves us anyway. He loves us anyway. He knows the dark things that we've harbored in our hearts. He knows the terrible thoughts that have crossed our minds. He knows the things we've done when no one else was looking. He knows it all. And he loves us anyway. And not only does he love us, but he invites us. Just as he invited Philip, just as he invited all the other disciples, come and follow me. What? Me? Really? Me. He called those guys. He called me. He's calling you. Jesus' invitation to follow him applies to absolutely everyone that seeks him with a sincere heart. Jeremiah 29, verse 13, the Lord declares, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. My friends, no matter where you are at in your relationship with God today, no matter what you currently understand, no matter what you currently believe, and no matter what you've already experienced of Jesus' power, there is more. There is more. There is much more that he has, he has yet to show you. There is much more that he has yet for you to experience. He said to Nathaniel, you think that's impressive? I saw you under the fig tree. You ain't seen nothing yet. There's more to come. And more than that, even if you are currently seeking Jesus with a skeptical heart like Nathaniel, and you're just not sure what to make of him and what he means for your life personally yet, I believe that if you are sincerely seeking the truth and willing to follow it wherever it leads you, then I believe that Jesus will reveal the truth of himself to you. He has done so for so many countless others. I could spend the next day giving testimonies of people that he has proven himself to. He has done it, and he will do it for you. And if today you're already following Jesus but you recognize you're only doing so half-heartedly, that moderate position describes where you're at, then Jesus is inviting you to a deeper level of love, devotion, and obedience. That he would truly be the most important thing in your life. Because remember, that middle ground doesn't exist. It's all or nothing. And Jesus' call is to come and follow me. Not go back home and think about it, Today is the opportunity. Will you follow? That you would be so excited about him that then you would run to tell your friends about him and that you would live fully for him and if necessary, willing to even die for him. Just as those first disciples were and as most of them did and many since. It was during the atheistic regime of the Soviet Union that an underground house church had managed to obtain just a single copy of the Gospel of Luke. This was the only written copy of scripture that many of those believers had ever seen in their lives. And so it was a treasure. And they carefully tore it into small sections to distribute within the body of believers. The plan being to memorize their section. Then at the following meeting they would come back together, trade their sections and memorize the next one. And they would do this again and again until everyone had the entire book of Luke preserved to memory. And this way, if any one of them was caught or confiscated, they still had God's word. And so one Sunday, these believers arrive inconspicuously in small groups or as 
singles throughout the day so as not to arouse suspicion of any KGB informants. By dark, they were all safely inside, windows closed, doors locked. Then just as they began, suddenly, the door was kicked in and two soldiers barged in, brandishing automatic weapons. One shouted, Everyone line up against the wall. If you wish to renounce your commitment to Jesus Christ, you may leave now. Three quickly left, then another. A few more moments passed, two more left through the door. This is your last chance, the soldier barked. Either renounce Christ and leave, or stay and suffer the consequences. Finally, two more, in embarrassed silence, covering their faces, slipped out into the night. No one else moved. Parents with small children, trembling beside them, looked down reassuringly. They fully expected that at best they would be imprisoned, and at worst to be gunned down then and there. After a few more moments of complete silence, one soldier closed the door, looked back at them and said, Keep your hands up, but this time do so in praise to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we too are Christians. We were sent to another house church several weeks ago to arrest a group of believers, but instead we were converted. We met Jesus. And as the believers looked at each other in utter astonishment, the other soldier added, We are sorry for the scare, but we have learned from experience that unless people are willing to die for Jesus, they cannot be fully trusted. In John chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, Jesus said to his disciples, Greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus proved his love for his friends by dying for them on that cross. He exercised his his divinity and his power by rising from the grave. And those men seeing it all, in turn, were willing to die for him. Willingly. Holding nothing back. And according to church tradition, following Jesus' ascension, Philip and Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew, They went on a missionary journey to the city of Hierapolis. And according to one account, through a miraculous healing and his powerful preaching, Philip converted the wife of the proconsul, the leader of the entire city. And this enraged the proconsul so much that he had Philip and Bartholomew tortured and finally crucified upside down. But all the while, Philip continued to preach from his cross, persuading many more to follow Jesus Christ. Those men were utterly persuaded of who Jesus was, what he had done, and they were willing to live boldly for him and would rather die than do anything less. So I ask you today, are you persuaded? Are you persuaded that Jesus is the Son of God? If you are then I would challenge you that the moderate position is no longer valid. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, if he has called you to follow him, then the only response is the same as Philip and Nathaniel. We leave it all, and we say yes to Jesus no matter what. He is of infinite importance and value. He is worthy of our lives, and yes, he is worthy 
of them being given up if that day comes. I pray that I am prepared and ready to live boldly for him and, if necessary, die for him. I pray that you are as well. I pray that you know Jesus because that makes all the difference. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have proven yourself again and again and again. You are the Son of God. You are the Logos. You are the Word. All things were created by you and through you. Nothing was created without you. And beyond that, you are the light of life. In you is the light that shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not understood it. And yet, Lord, to those who were willing to open their eyes to see the light to receive you, you were willing to call us children of God, to welcome us into your kingdom. And so, Father, what a calling, what a privilege to be your child, to be your follower, to not only be called a servant, but to be called a friend, and that you willingly laid down your life for me, for each one present here today, and in fact, for the entire world. And so, Father, I pray simply that we in return would be ready and willing to live boldly for you, that we would no longer be lukewarm, no longer in that moderate position, that you're somewhat important, but not really that vital, but that instead, Lord, you would be of utmost importance, that we would live boldly and, if necessary, even die for the sake of your name. So, Father, we ask that you would give us that grace and strength today by your Spirit. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.